Keith Richburg has been a print journalist almost his entire adult life. Originally from Detroit, Michigan, he worked for the Washington Post for 30 years. His assignments included four years in Southeast Asia from 1986 to 1990, Africa for three years, then five years in Hong Kong, a time as New York City bureau chief from 2007 to 2010. Richburg also was based for the Washington Post in Paris, later as China correspondent. In addition, he had his time in Afghanistan and Iraq. Keith Richburg is currently the director of the University of Hong Kong Journalism and Media Studies Center. We asked him to talk about his work. Keith Richburg, when did you decide that you wanted to live in Hong Kong? Oh, well, that's uh, that's really interesting. I was actually coming out here on a visit, actually, to Taiwan to see some friends. That was when I was in graduate school way back in 1983. I was going to graduate school in London and was coming out to visit some friends studying Chinese uh, who were going to go to work in Beijing. And the plane stopped in Hong Kong, and I did not realize in those days you needed a visa to go to Taiwan, which I did not have. And so I kind of got stuck in Hong Kong for three or four days, but then ended up walking around the city and thinking, wow, what a great place. I can't wait to come back here and live one day if I can do that. So it took me a while, but I was able to come back as a correspondent for the Washington Post in 1995. So how many and years came back here again? How many years have you been living there permanently? Uh, this time I've come back. I was here as a correspondent from 95 until 2000, so I was able to see the uh, the handover firsthand. Uh, this time I've been here since 2016, uh, full-time teaching journalism, so it's my second time here. What is it to be the director of journalism and media studies at the University of Hong Kong? Uh, well, it's a terrific job. Uh, I left the Washington Post in 2013, January, and tried to uh, decide what I wanted to do, what's the second act, and did some teaching in the U.S. first for a semester. I taught a semester at Princeton as a fellow there, and I spent a, a semester at Harvard, and I was uh, kicking around, really wanted to get back to Asia when this job was open. Uh, it, it's a, a relatively small journalism department. We have an undergraduate program, um, about 30 or so undergraduate students for each year, so a total of about 120 or 130, and we have a master's degree program. That's a one-year uh, program, starts in September, ends in June. Uh, we've got a you know fairly small staff, about seven full-time uh, instructors, uh, and then we use a lot of what we call adjuncts, who are journalists who are working in the field who come and teach one or two courses for us. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's basically, I teach a couple of courses. I teach a course on feature writing. I also teach another course on covering global affairs. And it's kind of running the department, deciding which courses that we're going to offer, uh, uh, helping recruit new staff to come in. And it's kind of setting the general direction for this uh, journalism program and churn out uh, young journalists who are going on and now working at places like uh, CNN and NBC, Bloomberg, uh, uh, Agence France Press, the French news agency, AP, Reuters, uh, the South China Morning Post, the local paper. So we're really proud of kind of what we've been able to do here in a few years. Given what we hear about the Chinese censorship, what kind of restrictions are placed on you? At the moment, uh, I could say none. I mean, in my, I, I, we are a department of the Faculty of Social Sciences, so I report to the dean of the faculty, and you know, he has told us full steam ahead. 
um, so far the word from the the president of the university is that we should not self-censor or self-limit. So we we haven't changed. Uh, We don't do anything uh, differently than we did before, even though there's this new national security law in place that uh, that has resulted in in a, a real kind of rollback of some of the freedoms that we've enjoyed here. But as far as we're concerned, you know, we're teaching you know, fact-based, uh, independent journalism. We don't teach propaganda. And nobody's told us to do anything differently. Nobody's uh, you know, knocked on the door. Nobody's given us a call. So we, we do what we've always been doing. We have not changed the thing. We teach one course on media law. Of course, we've the, the, the instructor for that course has had to add a, you know, obviously had to add a few weeks in to talk about the uh, national security law. But, you know, we, we, we haven't really changed anything that we do here. We're teaching the journalism the same way we've taught it before. Is there any restrictions on the Internet use for you uh, about anything that uh, you can see here in this country? At the moment, no. Uh, at the moment, there's no restriction on Internet use, which is very different from China, of course, where when you're in the mainland of China, uh, it, it, uh, it Gmail and, and Facebook and Twitter and a lot of these uh, tools that we're used to are, are off limits. You can get to it using a VPN, uh, but uh, but normally those those are cut off, and also websites are cut off. It's very hard to get to the New York Times, for example, or BBC. But at the moment, uh, there's been no restriction on internet uh, access to anything. Uh, we can we can pretty much do anything we wanted to uh, here in Hong Kong, pretty much the same way as before. I watched you give a speech. Actually, it was on. Um YouTube uh, that you gave at uh, Stony Brook a number of years ago, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you talked a lot about something called Weibo, and it was in the early days. Uh, and you said, mm-hmm. "I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with Weibo." Do you want to tell us what it mm-hmm. is and what has happened to it? Yeah, Weibo is kind of like uh, Chinese Twitter. Really, it's a it's a it, it was a big uh, a site that was actually quite. Uh, uh, popular among most Chinese to get on and talk about issues. Uh, just We called it Chinese Twitter. Um, it was for short blog posts, that kind of thing. Um, the, the, it's interesting. When it first uh, kind of burst onto the scene when I was in Stony Brook University, that was about uh, oh, 10 or more years ago. At the time, I was kind of thinking that this was going to be one of the things that might particularly especially democratize China. It might bring about a democratizing effect. Uh, for the first time as a journalist, we were able to know what ordinary Chinese were thinking by going to their going to Weibo and looking at what the conversation was, looking what what, what was being discussed online. Um, at, at, at the same time, it also kind of, uh, uh, I would say, took away the Communist Party's monopoly on the conversation and information. People could exchange uh, uh, articles that had appeared overseas, people could exchange views. Uh, since then, uh, it, it has, I must say, I was wrong. It did not have this kind of openness effect. It did not kind of open up the conversation as much as I thought because uh, the, the Communist Party authorities in China kind of brought the hammer down on, on Weibo uh, quite a bit. So it's much more constrained. It's much more censored than it was before. Uh, they started doing things like, for example, making people who post on Weibo start using their real names. You could no longer post anonymously, which took away a lot of the kind of the uh, the open conversation and the spontaneity of it when people were required to post their real names on it. 
they, they, they started doing things like censoring and even uh, going to the point of uh, tracking down people who are posting things considered anti-government or anti-party or, or simply just uh, uh, things the party didn't like. Uh, some things were considered rumors, rumor mongering. Uh, they, they came up with all these new laws against posting things that were considered rumor, uh, posting things that were considered uh, causing trouble. And so and so it really kind of uh, uh, tamped down that kind of openness of conversation now. Uh, they also, uh, the party, the authorities in, in China also went after what they considered the, the big users, people with a million or more followers. And they started calling those uh, the, the verified users. And it's got a V, uh, uh, the letter V for verified next to their name. So they went after what they called the big V, so those who had a million or more users. And in other words, those who were particularly popular at posting things. And they uh, meant some, some of them got warnings, some of them got arrested, but they were basically told to kind of rein it in, told the party line, stop posting things that were against the party, against the government, or that the party didn't like. So I have to say that uh, Weibo is a shell of, it, of what it used to be. It's a shell of its former self. A lot of that conversation has moved on to a new online platform now to WeChat, um, which is a, a smaller platform that has closed groups instead of open groups. So instead of people posting things can be openly read by everybody, uh, WeChat is more like something like a WhatsApp, which allows people to only post within a smaller circle of people. But even still there, the conversation is far less kind of open, far less critical than it used to be. I haven't seen this for a while, but for a long time, I noticed that uh, periodically the Washington Post and other newspapers would tuck into the paper the the China Daily, a Communist Party... Oregon. Why would the Post do something like that? I know they paid them money, but uh, without any really significant uh, disqualifiers. Well, that's a good question. You know, I, 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 you know, I don't know exactly. I believe it was simply a matter of they were distributing it, um, probably as some kind of a financial arrangement because China Daily needed to be distributed. Uh, I would probably have, if, if anybody had asked me, which they did not, <laughs> I might have cautioned that, look, you don't really want to be associated with China Daily, which is an out, you know, it's a paper that's the English language paper that's basically wholly owned by the Communist Party uh, in China. It's not something I think we want to be distributing, you know, uh, freely in the U.S., particularly a reputable paper like my old, you know, my old home, the Washington Post. So, yeah, I, I'm sure that was just a business decision made by somebody. I don't know if it still happens or not, uh, but I would probably have advised against it if anybody had asked me. Just before uh, I came down to do this uh, podcast with you, um, I got on a, a, a <clears throat> site that you suggested in your Stony Brook speech to people to look at called the Global Times. And um, mm-hmm. I, I think you said that was part of the, the People's Republic <clears throat> uh media operation but uh i saw a headline on there and i just wanted to ask you about this and i read the story and the headline was she xi jinping to attend martyrs day event and present flowers in tenement square and of course i looked up martyrs day and i thought it's odd that that headline would be on that website because of the several hundred people that died at Tiananmen Square, but this has nothing to do with that event. So uh, how often do you see things like that? And are you familiar with Martyr's Day? 
I, I was not familiar with Martyrs Day. I suppose to me, I think it probably has something. Maybe perhaps has something to do with World War II. I'm not 100 percent sure. But you know, Tiananmen Square is the big square in China that they use for big events. That they use it for the uh, the big Communist Party anniversary, which comes in October. October 1st is National Day, which is coming up soon. Uh, you, know, you know, we remember Tiananmen Square primarily because of what happened in 1989 and June 4th when when pro-democracy students were kind of massacred. They occupied the square and the People's Liberation Army moved in with armored personnel carriers and tanks. And, you know, many, many people, dozens or hundreds were, were killed on or around Tiananmen Square. That's how we remember it. But it is the square where all kinds of major events uh, do take place. They have parades there, et cetera. It's now relatively uh, fortified to make sure that there's no other kind of repeat of Tiananmen Square. I don't know. I think that could happen again. But, uh, you know, that it's, uh, you know, it, it's it's a common thing for, for events to be held there. Um, you know, the martyrs that they're talking about are probably not the martyrs that we remember from June 4th, 1989. It's something, it's a, the, the, what happened in, in 1989 is a memory that the Communist Party authorities have been very, uh, you know, very, very conscious about trying to stamp out. What's the difference? Because you lived all over the world. What's the difference um, living in Hong Kong, let's say anywhere in the United States? Well, you know, it's, it, uh, that's a great question. You know, to me, uh, the first time I set foot here, and even still, I mean, Hong Kong to me reminded me of, of New York City. Uh, there's nothing like uh, New York anywhere else in the country or the world uh, in terms of the 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 buzz you get, the the you know that kind of kind of urban built up uh, uh, capital city where everything's going on, just in terms of the uh, the the twenty four hour uh, life life of the city, the the pulse, the the urban pulse of it, the high rises, et cetera. Except in Hong Kong, I mean, some to some degree, uh, it also kind of re- what might remind you of San Francisco because they also have mountains here, so it's kind of you know, Hong Kong, Hong Kong is nestled into kind of a mountainside. So, you know, you've got the beauty of, of San Francisco with the mountains and the sea, but you also have that kind of buzz of New York City. Um, and again, I mean, I, I someone was asking me uh, where I might go to after uh, Hong Kong. And I was saying, boy, you know, it's really hard to say. But you know, only to me, only New York City has that same kind of urban buzz that you get in Hong Kong. It's a very crowded, uh, dense, high rise city. Um, there's a lot going on. The pu- great public transportation uh, system, very efficient. Um, you know, but they do have outer islands. They do have kind of country parks. They do have hiking trails. So it's not completely urban, but uh, it, it it probably does remind me more of a big built-up urban city like uh, like uh, and a compact urban city uh, like New York, closer than anything else. So that's that's kind of the main difference here in, in, uh, than anywhere else. It's convenient to get around, as I mentioned, public transport. The subway system is just terrific. The taxis here are cheap. Uh, unfortunately, the housing is incredibly expensive here, uh, and, but it's also an international city. And that's one of the great things about Hong Kong. It's really such an international city. It's uh, obviously primarily Chinese, um, 90%, but probably you know 90% or more. But uh, you also have you know a huge expatriate community. You have a huge... Uh, the minority population of Hong Kong uh, includes a lot of uh, uh, people from South Asia, a lot of people from elsewhere in Asia, um, but as well, you know, you have a lot of Americans, British, Australians, Canadians. Uh, there's a huge French community here. Um, so it is a real international 
city. And if you like to dine out, um, as I do, uh, my wife and I like to go out to dinner. It's also great at restaurant city, uh, including not only great Chinese food, but food from around the world. They have a lot of Michelin star chefs here. Uh, so it's just an absolute terrific place to be living. Correct me if I'm wrong, roughly 7 million people live there and some close to 30,000 students at the University of Hong Kong? Yeah, about 8 million people now, I think, including all of the expatriates and, and domestic workers and, and others. Densest uh, city or in the world? Uh, probably one of them. I mean, uh, Tokyo perhaps may be you know, more dense in parts, but Tokyo also is kind of more spread out and sprawling than Hong Kong. Hong Kong is actually quite small. You know, it's a relatively uh, compact place, which makes it more dense. There is a certain segment of um, media world in the United States that is suggesting almost on a daily basis that there's a coming war with China. When you hear that, based on your perspective, what do you think? Well, I think there's a coming conflict. I don't think it's going to be a war. I don't think the next, if there is any war, and I hope there isn't, I really do hope there is not, but I don't think it would be an old-fashioned kind of shooting war. Um, I think that's kind of old-fashioned. I think the next war is going to be cyber. Um, it, it's going to, There's definitely a growing competition. I do think there are smart people on both sides who recognize that a, you know, an outright conflict would be uh, you know, too devastating for either side and and something useless in this day and age. I do think the, the, these two great powers, the United States as the, you know, current sole superpower and China as the rising superpower that's looking to, you know, expand their influence in the region, especially here in Asia, they, you know, they've got to learn how to accommodate each other a bit. I don't see, as I mentioned, a shooting war, but again, the, the, the there is always that possibility of what I call the, the tragic mistake. You've got in the South China Sea, for example, you've got a lot of planes and ships in a very limited uh, space, a very crowded space for sea lanes and for airspace. There's always the possibility of an accident. There's always a possibility of you know, ships bumping into each other or planes bumping into each other that could then lead to some kind of an escalation. Um, you know, I, 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 was, I was reading with fascination how one of my my old editor, Bob Woodward at the Washington Post with Robert Costa, have a, have, they have a new book out called Peril, which we're, in which uh, they report that uh, General Mark Milley, the Joint Chiefs Chairman, had to actually call the Chinese and assure them that nothing was going to, to happen, that President Trump at the end of his uh, term in office was not going to start a war with China. Uh, those are the kinds of communications I think that, that should be going on, because as I mentioned, the the biggest uh, chance for a conflict, for an armed, open armed conflict between the U.S. and China would be for there to be some kind of a mistake or a miscommunication going on. Uh, that, that's a real possibility, but I do think that there are enough uh, guardrails in place to keep that from happening. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be conflict of another sort, but I don't think it's going to be an open armed conflict. I want to go down the list of the places that you've worked in your life and get you just to give us a brief snapshot of the big takeaway you have from these different uh, assignments. Let's sure. start let's start with 1986 the Southeast Asia assignment. What's the big takeaway from those 4 years? Uh, it, it, the big takeaway from those four years in Southeast Asia is at the time, I thought that the region was heading towards a more kind of democratic future, that a lot of the countries in the region were looking to become 
uh, a lot more democratic, that the authoritarianism perhaps was on the back foot in that part of the world in Southeast Asia, that the, the press was becoming a little bit freer, that people were having a few more rights. Yeah, looking back now from 1986 until now, that's a long time. And I'm looking around that part of the world and I see Thailand is under a military regime yet again, um, having gone through, you know, a, you know, some some bouts of democracy, but they've gone back under kind of a, a you know a hardline military regime. Uh, Myanmar is yet again under a military regime after having gone through uh, you know a bout of democracy. Um, uh, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos are still you know basically under you know, single party communist authoritarian states. Um, Cambodia is a big disappointment. We thought after the Vietnamese troop withdrawal and, and elections there, there might be a chance that it be, would become more democratic. But Hun Sen, the prime minister who I covered in you know the late 1980s, is still prime minister you know, in, in Cambodia today. Uh, the Philippines, which was the democratic success story under Cory Aquino in 1986 when I went there, is now uh, you know under an authoritarian under uh, President Duterte who looks like he's trying to extend his term in office despite having a single term limit by running for vice president now and installing a loyalist. Uh, we don't know who, but perhaps even his own daughter as, as the presidential candidate, which would allow him to keep power behind the scenes. And they've taken a very dark authoritarian turn. Uh, you know, you know uh, Singapore is still basically under a, you know, a single party. They have elections and the single party does win those elections, but it's still, you know, basically controlled by the people's action party. Malaysia has become a bit of a mess. I mean, nobody kind of quite knows what's happening there. But, you know, they, they kind of had several prime ministers over the last couple of years after after we thought it was taking a democratic path. Indonesia is the one, I think, that still is kind of the outlier. They still seem to be uh, on the democratic path. It seems to be more open than some of the other places I've mentioned, although even there, uh, you, do, you still see some kind of problems popping up there with, uh, you know, the the. Uh, um, a, a shift towards kind of a more more radical version of Islam that seems to be kind of influencing the government in Indonesia. But I have to say, uh, given everything else going on in the region, it still probably is the most stable you know, democracy in the in the region, which is a surprise because when I was there in '86, Indonesia was still under uh, President Suharto, which is an authoritarian regime. Africa, you spent 1991 to 1994. What did you? take away from that experience and what do you see now well the other thing kind of similar i mean when i was in africa i was actually uh, thinking that you know we might be seeing the the wave of democracy that swept through eastern europe and eventually in through through the soviet union uh, which then became russia and, and i thought we might be seeing that democratic wave uh, sweeping through africa when i arrived there it was just after uh, kenneth kaunda was ousted in a democratic election in Zambia, and there were there were calls for democratic elections elsewhere. Some of the autocrats um, were being toppled in Ethiopia, um, uh, in in where Mengistu was toppled in in Somalia, where the Siad Barre regime was gone. Yeah, but when I look over now, I see some of the same uh, some of the same folks are still in power, and they've been there ever since. It's still since I was there before. I mean, you know, um, uh, Museveni is still in power uh, in in Uganda. Uh, Paul Kagame is still in power in Rwanda. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it, it's it's sad to see there have been more elections, but there seems to be this kind of uh, turn back towards strongman rule. We've just had, you know, uh, military governments and coups coming back in some of the West African countries. 
you know, it, so it's been disappointing. Uh, South uh, we, Zimbabwe, they, uh, Mugabe was finally kind of uh, toppled, uh, but it's kind of far from clear how democratic Zimbabwe has become. And, you know, one of the interesting countries I still keep following is South Africa, and we, you know, obviously the, you know, corruption has become a huge problem. The the income inequality, the gap between the the, the whites and non-whites is still is still as great as ever before. Um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, disappointment with the African uh, National Congress there, the ANC. But we'll have to see if Cyril Ramaphosa, um, a, a guy who I thought should have been president, you know, uh, uh, several terms ago, but never quite made it there. He's finally president now. We'll have to see if he can do anything to kind of really uh, close the income gap, uh, reduce the corruption. The Jacob Zuma regime in South Africa was terrible. Um, we'll have to see if South Africa can improve at all under the uh, under the uh, Cyril Ramaphosa's uh, uh, reign there now. But uh, you know, again, it's a it's a it's been a huge disappointment. But on the other hand, I mean, you know, the democracy has stayed stable. Um, the ANC is still in power. They haven't really had any real competition for power. So we'll have to see how how that goes. The biggest problem there is just corruption. But uh, you know, I wrote a book about Africa at the time. I'd probably write the same book again now. If I read it right, uh, you were in Hong Kong between 1995 and 2000, and it was in 1997 when the British turned yes. uh, over the Hong Kong to Correct. the uh, Chinese and gave them 50 years uh, to uh, get ready to be part of the mainland. Uh, what, what's the difference for you now, l- looking back to that first mm-hmm. assignment? It's interesting because, you know, we thought at the time in 1997 when the Chinese took over that there would be a huge change in Hong Kong. Uh, the worst case scenario is that they would uh, send, send troops over the border and impose kind of new national security restrictions and newspapers might be uh, shut down if they were too independent here in Hong Kong, um, that, that the you know, political parties and, and civil society would be, would be kind of shut down. Uh, that people would be forced to to leave uh, or face prison time for being too outspoken. Uh, in 1997, none of that happened. I mean, China came in and took a kind of very hands-off approach uh, to Hong Kong. And you know, we woke up on you know July 1st and and later on in 1997 after the handover, and we all were surprised that nothing really had changed. Um, you know, so and, and you know, people. You know, we all came here. We opened the Washington Post opened the bureau here in 1995 because we all thought that this was going to be the biggest story of 1997. This kind of a, a Chinese takeover of this freewheeling, quasi-democratic capitalist city. Um, it wasn't the biggest story in 1997 because the takeover, the Chinese takeover of Hong Kong, became almost a non-event. In fact, the biggest story of 1997 was, was the Asian economic crisis, which came a month or so later when the Thai bot collapsed and followed by the Indonesian rupiah and followed by the Malaysian ringgit and, and, and the South Korean won. All these economies in Asia collapsed. So the, South, the, the, the Southeast Asian and Asian economic crisis became the biggest story of 97, not the Hong Kong handover, because nothing really happened in Hong Kong. They really, the Chinese Communist Party took over and we didn't see a whole lot of change uh, at the time in Hong Kong, uh, what we're seeing now going on in Hong Kong, in um, which basically started with the, the imposition of a national security law in 2020, uh, we've seen newspapers closed. We've seen uh, political parties uh, disbanding themselves. Uh, we've seen opposition politicians in jail or they're having to flee into exile. Uh, you know, we see this new national security law. 
um, uh, forcing you know, books to be taken off shelves, uh, movies being censored, uh, academics um, being told that you know they, they can't teach certain topics, certain topics becoming off limits, um, people censoring themselves. Everything that we thought would happen in, 1970, in 1997 is happening now. So I kind of say, look, I mean, 1997 was the official handover of Hong Kong to China, but uh, the year 2020 was kind of the makeover. That's when China started making Hong Kong over into a place that more resembles mainland China than resembles the Hong Kong we all we all got to know. So I guess, uh, you know, we had to wait a few years. We had to wait over a, a couple of decades or more, 22, 23 years. But finally, what we thought would happen is happening now. And so Hong Kong is a completely different place now just because of the sweeping, very draconian national security law that was imposed at the end of June or July 1st of 2020. You were in Paris 2000 to 2005. What's your uh, yes. what's your view of that experience and what do you see there now? Paris was, I mean, Paris and covering Europe was a, a terrific time. I was there during the expansion of the, East, the, of the uh, European Union. Uh, it expanded to include the Eastern countries, uh, um, uh, it's expanded to include, uh, Rome, you know, Poland. Uh, uh, it included the Czech Republic. Um, you know, it included, you know, Slovakia. So, you know, it, it was a really fascinating time to be there. And uh, France itself uh, was interesting to cover. Uh, some of the things that have happened since, I believe, uh, had their predicate in the time that I covered it there. Uh, and among other things, I always talked about what I, what I saw in Europe as the democratic deficit. Um, they expanded to the, you know, to the eastern countries, which was always part of the big European project. Um, but they never actually had kind of buy-in from the population on these sorts of things. Uh, whenever uh, 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 treaties went up in Europe for a popular vote, they almost always were defeated. <laughs> the Treaty of Nice, um, which was supposed to kind of uh, be the, the new treaty that was going to um, uh, that was going to outline the the contours of this expansion. It was actually defeated when it came up for a vote, for votes in places like France and in places like the Netherlands, uh, where the population said, you know, we're not ready for this. It's too much. Um, but then, you know, the bureaucrats would always kind of uh, figure out a way to get it, to shove it through. Anyways, you put, you know, you keep tinkering with it and put it up for another vote, and another vote, and another vote, and a vote until it passed. Um, you know, but again, this expansion of European powers over national powers, this expansion of the Brussels bureaucracy um, taking place over the nation states of Europe was always something that was kind of, uh, to put it crudely, kind of shoved down the throats of Europeans and never really quite kind of accepted in a democratic process by Europeans. And to me, that led to Brexit. It was, uh, it was, it was, it was basically a lot of, of uh, sovereignty being taken away from national governments and being incorporated into the European government, control over borders, control over immigration, uh, control over the justice system, et cetera. Uh, finally, it was the British who, who, you know, not surprisingly said, you know, enough is enough. You know, we, we want out. We did, this is not what we kind of signed up for. And of course, when they had a vote, the vote went very narrowly, but, you know, substantially to leave the European Union. Um, yeah, so, you know, to me, having been there during that whole period, I was not surprised uh, by that Brexit vote. And in fact, if they ever allowed that kind of a vote in other countries, I think you might actually see other countries uh, voting to leave. Uh, the other thing that, that I find kind of really interesting there is how the, um, the the mainstream centrist parties have all kind of collapsed. So when I was there, it was always the, the 
the Gaullist party on the right in France and then the uh, the Socialist Party on the left um, at the time, you know, the party of Francois Mitterrand and, uh, and Francois Hollande and then the party of Jacques Chirac and Nicolas Sarkozy. So it's fascinating to me that how in France specifically and across Europe, you've seen these parties of the, you know, of the center, the center left and the center right have lost a huge amount of their support. Uh, with that support now being very fragmented around. We saw that just recently in the German election, where the two big parties of the past, the Socialist Party and the, and the Christian Democratic Union, you know, they, they, they together probably only got about half the vote. You know, so these parties that used to dominate, you know, are now being forced into, you know, coalitions, or in France's case, you've now got a, a complete uh, political unknown a couple of decades ago, you know, Macron, who had no party, you know, who came came in uh, from pretty much nowhere and took over the French presidency. The other thing that's kind of fascinating there is the rise of the extremes. I mean, I, I covered uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen. I've interviewed him in France, and now you see his daughter, Marine Le Pen, has got a reasonable shot at the presidency by building on this kind of discontent that's going on. So in the United States, we had... You know the rise of, of Trump and the and the the Trump faction of the Republican Party. So it waits to be you know it's still to be seen whether or not um, you know this kind of populist wave will will lead to another populist being elected. You did have Viktor Orban in in Hungary when I was there and I covered him and his Fidesz party when they were just first coming onto the scene in Hungary. But you know it, it remains to be seen whether one of the Western European countries will have some kind of similar kind of populist. Uh, uh, movement that, that actually was able to take power. And, I, and I'm looking very closely at the French election to see what happens uh, uh, next year. When was your time in Iraq and Afghanistan? That was during the Paris stint. So I arrived in Paris in 2000, um, ended up going to Afghanistan in 2001. Um, hard to believe we were there 20 years later. <laughs> and in 2003, when the invasion of Iraq happened, I went there from Paris as well. So Paris was kind of the place from which uh, you went to cover some of these conflicts going on, both in the Iraq and Afghanistan. I also went to the, uh, Israel, the Palestinian territories, and, uh, and other places in Africa. I went to Morocco and Algeria and elsewhere. Do you remember what you thought about the future of the Iraq situation and the Afghanistan situation when you were there? Yeah, I do remember in, well, I've gone back, I went back and forth to Afghanistan more um, during that period of time. And then, and then later I went between, into Afghanistan, I went between 2001 and 2010, I think was my last trip to Afghanistan. And I remember just thinking that uh, we, 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 the United States and the, the Western coalition, NATO, we had no real reason to be there that long. Uh, we were trying to do nation building. Uh, but we weren't actually admitting that we were there doing nation building. We were trying to do nation building on the sly or nation building on the cheap, uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, I remember them talking about uh, building the Afghan army, and uh, and 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 uh, I went there. I went around there for a while with uh, my home state senator, Senator Carl Levin. Uh, rest in peace. He passed away recently, but I remember I've known him since uh, I was a college student. Covered his first campaign for Senate. Rode around in a car with him. I remember him complaining about how we weren't doing enough to build up the Afghan army. Uh, this was 2010. And I remember thinking to myself, my God, it's been nine years. We've been nine years in Afghanistan and we still haven't built up an Afghan army. Little did I know that in 2021, uh, we, we would still be complaining that we hadn't built up the Afghan army. Uh, you know, uh, how much money did we sink into Afghanistan? And I remember going back um, at my last trip there in 2010 and some previous trips uh, when I went into Afghanistan, I remember 
thinking how uh, it was kind of what was being reported back about the progress we were making just didn't match what I was seeing on the ground. I mean, these uh, Afghan cities, uh, it didn't surprise me at all when they all collapsed one after the other uh, because uh, the, the Afghan government was never particularly in control of them. Uh, you know, government officials could, could say they controlled the cities during the daytime, but the Taliban more easily ruled at night. Um, you know, it, it, a place I went to Kunduz, I went to Kandahar, I went to to, uh, to Jalalabad, I went to, to uh, Helmand Province, I went to Herat. In, in all of these places, it was always you know the, the Afghan government and the security forces could claim to control the centers of the cities during the daytime, but at nighttime, people claimed the Taliban would come in. They intimidated local officials. They they they, they conducted assassination. So the Taliban ruled at night. Uh, and, and, and it was just always kind of a fallacy that this Afghan government was actually in charge of much of anything beyond the green zone in Kabul, despite the fact that we were pumping in just, you know, billions of dollars into Afghanistan. And, and again, I mean, you know, I, I know I know it's quite controversial. A lot of people say we should have left the residual force there, et cetera. But, you know, I, I have to agree with Joe Biden. If after 20 years we're still saying that this government can't stand on its own two feet, if after 20 years – we're still saying this Afghan army uh, can't do its own logistics and supplies and needs the Americans there for, uh, you know, as, as a, you know, a background force, then we haven't done our job. I mean, it's, it's, it's 20 years is long enough, 10 years as long enough. I was thinking that in 2010 during my last trip to Afghanistan, it was way enough time. You graduated from the university of Michigan in 1980, grew up in Detroit. Yes. You mentioned Carl Levin. What, uh, what do you take away from your uh, relationship with him as you were starting out in this business? Oh, he was a great guy. You know, I, I kind of kept in touch with him a little bit over the years. He was always very generous every time I saw him. I remember the first time I, I was a young reporter at the Michigan Daily School newspaper, and I, I really was interested in kind of politics and government and uh, went to cover his campaign for Senate in 1978. He was running against a guy named Bob Griffin. And uh, he, he let me ride around in his car with him uh, doing some campaigning. And uh, he was such an uh, energetic guy. And I'm the young college student. I think I fell asleep in the back of the car as he was driving me, <laughs> he was driving me back, uh, back to Detroit from some upstate visits. Uh, he was always a stand-up guy. I thought it was really interesting that he got involved in armed services. He was, you know, he was, you know, he was the president of Detroit City Council uh, when I was growing up, I always remembered him as a liberal Democrat on the Detroit city council, but then he got involved in the armed services, uh, and, and foreign policy, uh, which I thought was really, uh, interesting. And it also, uh, probably in to some degree, uh, uh, instilled in me this interest in foreign policy and, and, and military and defense issues as well. Um, because he showed that you can be an urban, you know, an urban Democrat from Detroit, but still care about foreign policy and still care about defense issues. You know, and I always thought that was really, really great about uh, about Carl Levin. Um, I, I was, I, and also he had his his brother Sander Levin was uh, also in Congress at the time, and I see his son now is in, in in Congress. So it's great to see, great to see a prominent family there. Great to see a, a Michigander there. Um, you know, I, I got to say, you know, they, you know, one of my one of my colleagues uh, from the Michigan Daily, who's now with the Washington Post, Lenny Bernstein, had a terrific story in the paper in the Washington Post recently about the. There was a sexual harassment scandal going on at University of Michigan when we were there uh, in the 1970s, 76 to 1980. And we, we knew nothing about it at the time. And it touches on the athletics department and, uh, and it touched on uh, a, a physician who's no longer alive 
um, and abuse that was suffered by some young student athletes at the time. And God, you know, I just kicked myself that as student journalists, we just didn't know anything about that at the time. You know, I, we, 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 we read the stories about what happened at Michigan State, you know, with the, with the, uh, with the physician who was abusing uh, a young gymnasts and others there. But I mean, we had a similar scandal going on at the University of Michigan. And that's really one of the things I just wish we had known something at the time and we could have done something as student journalists at the Michigan Daily. When you were nine years old, the uh, Detroit <clears throat> civil rights uh, explosion happened with 43 dead, several hundred injured. Do you remember that? And it, did it have any impact on you or your family? Absolutely. Absolutely remember it. I remember the National Guard troops coming in. I remember having the uh, huddle. Uh, we, so we slept in the living room because we were worried about stray bullets coming into the window of the upstairs part of the part of our house and i remember the national guard troops i remember the neighborhood shops that i used to go buy my comic books uh, the neighborhood cunningham's drugstore and the and the and the and the kreskies and all these places i remember them burning to the ground i remember my father taking me out there to just have a look at the firemen were trying to fight the blazes and he said take a look i want you to see what pe- your people are doing to their own city you know it was it it definitely had an indelible impact uh, you know, on me growing up to see that kind of violence in an American city. Now, I've seen it subsequently. I watched on television the Los Angeles riots after Rodney King. You know, but you know, and I, again, I watched the the protest that went on after the the murder of George Floyd under a policeman's knee. And and it's interesting that uh, some of the same issues are still there. Um, some of the same, you know, it, it, after the Detroit riots, you came out with the Kerner report that talked about how America was still two societies, one black and one white. Um, you know, and how you needed, among other things, they put a, put the blame on the news media, saying that newsrooms needed to be more integrated because they weren't telling the stories of the black community. This was after the 1967 Detroit riots. Um, you know, the same thing could have been said, you know, after the George Floyd murder in 2020, you know, in the in the in the um, in the George Floyd protest that went on. You know, it's 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 to me, it's absolutely fascinating how little changed during that period. Now, we started to see this kind of racial reckoning um, that went on. You know, we started to see that, you know, we started to see kind of statues, these statues of, you know, Confederate generals coming down, including in Richmond, Virginia, which is kind of amazing. I mean, some of that should have happened decades ago. Um, But but on the other hand, I look now and I see kind of the, um, you know, this movement for police and justice reform in Congress has stalled out uh, yet again. Um, you know, I thought something might, you know, happen with that um, this time around. I thought there was an, enough support on both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democratic, for that. But nothing seems to have gotten done. I see this kind of rollback of uh, of the uh, Democratic push for uh, uh, election reform in the U.S. You know, it's been kind of stalled in the Senate. So, you know, the, the hope that I had that maybe finally, after all these years following 67, we're going to see some kind of uh, legislative changes. I mean, none of that's. A lot of that stalled out. There have been some changes. I've mentioned the statues coming down, uh, the renaming of the Wilson School, et cetera. But those are the more symbolic things. Some of the more uh, systematic things haven't been done yet. So it's been a bit disappointing to see kind of the the, the movement from the George Floyd protest have kind of seemed to me to be kind of fizzling out a little bit now. So we'll have to wait and see what comes. 2007 to 2010, you were in New York City. What do you remember about yes. that experience? 
Well, you know, the funny thing is, the first thing, the first thing I covered in New York City when I when I got there as a as a correspondent, you know, I was foreign editor for a while, and went up to New York City. The absolute first story I had to cover was the resignation of Elliot Spitzer because of a sex scandal. You know, and uh, and and now I look back and I say, my God, you know, now it, that was before the Me Too movement, uh, and uh, now we go back and we have another New York governor in, in Andrew Cuomo having to resign because of uh, you know because of a, a scandal over sexual harassment, et cetera. And I keep thinking to myself, my God, has nothing changed in Albany, you know, in all of this time? <laughs> there was. Um, uh, so that was the most. That was one one really interesting thing. I was also there. It's really interesting. I was there uh, a couple of things. I was there for and I covered the election in New Jersey of Chris Christie. Uh, and I, this is a guy who I thought you know had what it takes to possibly one day become president. Um, he did run, and I think his campaign kind of fizzled out, uh, maybe because of uh, Bridgegate, uh, which which hung over his campaign. But the other thing I got to cover, um, which I'm very lucky to say, was I got to cover the that epic. Uh, political battle for the Democratic primary between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. I got to travel on Obama's plane a little bit. Uh, we, did, we went we were on the western on a western swing through uh, uh, Montana and South Dakota, um, and I got to cover kind of the the battle in the Northeast because from New York City I was able to cover kind of New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island, all the way up to Massachusetts, and that was absolutely. I mean, as, as politics though that was just an epic battle for the democratic nomination which obama eventually uh, won um, eked out over hillary clinton and then you know it was a it was a terrific battle uh, for john mccain so if you're into politics um that was one for the ages and it was one i'm glad i was able to cover so probably one of the biggest memories i have of that uh, that whole period um the other thing i actually remember was that was also a period of time um during during uh, that period i was in new york when uh, we got the first rulings, usually coming from courts and sometimes from state legislatures uh, involving same-sex marriage. And I'm really glad to say I was kind of in on the ground floor of, uh, of watching watching that change. Where did you meet your wife? In Paris. <laughs> Absolutely. The first person I met in Paris was my wife. She was actually working for a French bank, BNP Paribas. So we've been friends for uh, 20 years, but just got married relatively recently when we came here to Hong Kong. What does she think about all this traveling around and you being away? Well, well, we've we've had a great time traveling together, as a matter of fact, and being and you know it's great to find somebody who doesn't mind being on the road and enjoyed it, enjoys being on the road. Although I have to say, you know, because of the pandemic and because of the very strict uh, quarantine rules they have here in Hong Kong, I mean, anybody coming from uh, many countries, including the U.S. You have to do 21 days in forced hotel quarantine upon return. So as a consequence of that, and also the difficulty of flights, uh, we have not set foot out of Hong Kong since late 2019. So i got to say, this is kind of the longest I've been in one place, I think, since I graduated from college. I'm not, I'm not used to this. I was looking through my drawer the other day to find something in a, a, under a pile of papers and other things. I came across my passport and it was looking at me forlornly, asking, "How come we haven't gone anywhere in the last I know, two years or so?" Uh, I can't wait to actually. I'm, I'm double vaccinated. My wife is double vaccinated, but really because of this kind of uh, very draconian, uh, very strict quarantine uh, regime for Hong Kong, which has kept the virus, you know, to a minimum here, I must say. So it's been quite successful, but it also means it just makes it really uh, almost impossible to travel because I really don't want to come back and have to do 21 days forced hotel quarantine, which you have to actually pay for as well. So it's not cheap 
you know, on top of other things. Tell us some other. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to traveling again. <laughs> Sorry. Tell us some other restrictions uh, on you in Hong Kong because of COVID. Well, that's been the main thing. I mean, Hong Kong never had a strict, a, a very strict lockdown. Uh, we did work from home uh, for quite a while. And last year, so the year uh, basically 2020, um, September 2020 until uh, June of 2021, most of our classes had to be conducted online. Um, we, we weren't doing many face-to-face classes, and, and that was a real disappointment. It's a disappointment for uh, the, the instructors like myself because we don't actually get to meet our students and talk to them and give them that kind of in-person coaching and experience that they come to us for. You know, when you're teaching journalism, I teach feature writing. I need to sit down with the students, you know, and talk to them one-on-one. But more importantly, it's, it's, it's hard for the students. It's hard for them to stay concentrated online and not getting the full, rich experience that we want to give them. So that was the main thing was teaching uh, through online. Now we've all become experts on Zoom. I'm getting really sick of Zoom by now. I like to do things face to face, but that's been the main restriction. Um, you know, we, we went through a very, we had about three or four waves of the virus coming through here. And again, it was nowhere near anything like in the US. I mean, they've right now to this point, they've only had about 215 or so deaths and during the entire epidemic from COVID and only a, a few thousand cases. So very, very minor uh, because of this kind of strict zero COVID strategy. But they've had a couple of waves and they went through a period of time when uh, things closed here, at, uh, restaurants, uh, restaurants and bars. And bars were closed for a very long time. Restaurants had to close at 6 p.m., movie theaters. Um, you know, entertainment places were, uh, clo- you know, swimming pools and gyms were closed for a long time. Uh, those are all open back again now. Movie theaters are open. Gyms are back open again. Uh, they still have restrictions on outdoor gatherings. Um, I tend to think a lot of that's political um, because the COVID uh, coincided with the protests that were going on here in 2019. And COVID came in in early 2020. So with these restrictions, only four people are allowed to gather outside at any one time. Um, you know, again, they, this, this is selectively enforced, and I think that's a way of crowd control. It's a way the police can keep down on protests as opposed to COVID, because now people can dine indoors, et cetera. So it doesn't really make any sense scientifically, except it is a way that allows the police to keep make sure that there are no more protests uh, going on here. But other than that, I mean, we've actually been, been very, very fortunate to be able to lead uh, relatively normal lives, uh, with the exception that Hong Kong, as I mentioned, is a pretty small place, a pretty compact place. And without that ability to travel in and out, you know, you're not taking those weekend trips to, to Japan or Thailand or, or China or being able to take a couple of weeks and go back to the States and, and see friends and family. So that's been the biggest restriction is the not being able to travel. There isn't an hour probably there isn't 15 minutes that goes by here in the United States where almost all media will talk about, write about either masks or vaccination. What's it like uh, in Hong Kong right. for those two issues? Well, the thing about the thing that's interesting here is everybody masked up right away. I mean, we, you know, don't forget the virus started, uh, was first discovered in Wuhan, China, which is a, uh, just over the border from us here, and we're we're an island, but we're part of the mainland uh, in the sense of you know China sovereignty. But you know the local Hong Kongers put their masks on in January of uh, late January of 2020, and kind of never took them off, and they did it not complaining. Uh, you walk outside now, and you see pretty much everybody wearing a mask, and nobody complains about it. 
uh, that has contributed, I think, enormously to keeping the uh, COVID rate here uh, incredibly low. Um, for a, con- a dense, packed city like this, where everybody's riding the MTR and everybody's packing in the restaurants, et cetera, uh, you know, the, the rates have been incredibly low. Most of the cases now for the last, uh, I think, about five months or so, uh, most of the, almost all the cases here have been what they call imported cases, people coming in from overseas. Um, and they catch them, most of these, in these kind of quarantine hotels. But they haven't had any virus circulating in the community here, at least for about five months now, because everybody religiously uh, wears their masks. I mean, and, and, and that's why I find the debate about masks in the U.S. kind of, uh, uh, in, you know, I don't, I don't understand it because masks are such a, an easy tool. It's not easy. We all find them uncomfortable. I mean, it's, it's, it's hot in Hong Kong sometimes in the summer months, and I sweat, but, you know, you, you wear the mask. You just wear the mask. It's just what you do. Uh, it, it's it's funny. You see people, you know, if I'm, I, I, I'm a public transport guy, but I stand outside. I see people sitting in their car, driving to and from wherever they're going, wearing a mask in their own car. <laughs> you know, people here just religiously wear their mask. Now, they had the experience of SARS, the, uh, the uh, respiratory disease that swept through here in the early 2000s. So they know, you know, uh, you know what, a, what an infectious disease can do, and they just wear the masks without complaint. The, now, the, the flip side of that is the vaccine rate is not as high as it should be. It's actually relatively low. I think they're about 59, maybe hitting 60% now after months and months and months. Plenty of vaccine available, so much available, they might have to dump some of it if, if it's not used up. Because the rate of infections here, the rate of actual um, uh, COVID cases here was so low, that a lot of people don't feel the need to take the vaccine. They say, well, why should I take the vaccine? We don't have any COVID here. Or why should I take the vaccine? Because uh, I could just wear a mask. It's not a problem. So in some ways, Hong Kong has been a victim of their own success. Because the rates have been so low, people don't feel the urgency um, to to uh, uh, to get the vaccines, even though there are plenty available. They've had a uh, Sinovac, uh, which is the Chinese-produced vaccine, uh, and they've had the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which is the one that I and my wife have taken um, you know, so we, it was, you know, we got it back in April, no problem at all. Just, you know, make an appointment online, walk in, get vaccinated. Um, you know, it, my question is whether we're going to get the, uh, the booster shot, which I know is in, uh, being started now. I think President Biden took one. But again, here in Hong Kong, because we don't have that many cases, people don't think there's a need to really start with booster shots yet because there's just no COVID around at the moment other than some of these imported cases. And most of those get caught at the airport. The other thing that Hong Kong did very, very well, and I think the U.S. really fell down on this in the beginning, was kind of the contact tracing. If anyone here came down with COVID, they did a pretty darn good job, especially in those early days, of tracking every place that person had been, everyone that they'd been in contact with. Uh, if they lived in an apartment building, here as most people do, they would put make everybody in the apartment building go into go do some mandatory testing and sometimes go into uh, forced quarantine. In the States, I was just amazed that people were flying in, uh, not having to isolate, not having the quarantine, and there was no way to know where people were. So there was no contact tracing at all really going on. So that was a real surprise to me at how, and again, if they had just looked at what was happening in China, looked at what was happening in Hong Kong, looked at what was happening in, in Asia and in Italy and elsewhere, the U.S. had plenty of time in February, March, April of 2020 to plan for what was coming, and and nothing was done. It wasn't done. Two things about Hong Kong uh, I want to ask you about. 
if it's it's reported that there are more skyscrapers in Hong Kong than anywhere in any city in the world, and that the busiest air cargo uh, airport is right there in Hong Kong. Are both of those correct from your viewpoint? And what impact does that have on a, a densely populated uh, spot in the world? Yeah, I think that's true. I, I've heard that about the, the, the number of skyscrapers. I think that's true. Pretty much every building here is a skyscraper. <laughs> if there were some uh, low-rise buildings, pretty much all of those get knocked down and replaced by a skyscraper at some point. So, yeah, uh, it, it, it makes for a very uh, dramatic and, I think, beautiful uh, cityscape to have these number of skyscrapers. And, the, and if, you, if you come here, one of the things that's most stunning, I think, is how they can build these skyscrapers into the sides of hills and mountains. It, it, it is quite beautiful, but it is it is high rise living. But at the same time, they've managed to keep a lot of green space here. There are a lot of uh, there's a lot of undeveloped areas. There are a lot of country parks. There are a lot of hiking trails. Um, and in addition, uh, in addition to this main rock that we're on called Hong Kong Island, there are a lot of smaller uh, islands um, where it's 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 very rural. And 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 you know it's 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 you can go out and see nature as well. And you can just take ferry boats between the islands, and it's it's quite dramatic. Uh, yeah, so that's a, that's a real terrific part of it, you know. And again, uh, Hong Kong's an island, uh, pretty much. I mean, there's a part of it, the Kowloon Peninsula, that's connected to mainland China. But you know, uh, for all practical purposes, Hong Kong's an island, so pretty much everything here has to be flown in. Um, it comes by ship or it's flown in, um, and so that actually was a problem during COVID when shipping was disrupted and and air freight was disrupted. Um, I remember trying to send some. In fact, I was trying to send some masks. Was we had plenty of masks to go around here, and I was trying to send masks back to friends in Detroit when COVID was hitting Detroit very hard. And uh, it was hard because if you went to the regular post office, they'd say, "Well, sorry, there are no planes going to the United States." <laughs> we, you know, I couldn't get the mask there. I had to go to FedEx, and you know, prices were incredibly high. And, uh, you know, so it, you know, it, things are getting a little bit more back to normal now. Uh, shipping is still taking a long time. Um, uh, I'm, I'm told by my friends who are in the shipping business now that if you want to order anything but for Christmas, you better get it, the order in now. We're worried if we can ever get Christmas trees here you know, on time uh, because shipping is backed up because of big problems in ports in the U.S. and big problems in ports in, in, in Europe. Shipping rates are also through the roof now. So it is one of the problems living on an island that pretty much everything has to come here from somewhere else. Um, a lot of stuff comes from mainland China, but that border has been uh, partially closed um, because of SARS. Uh, because sorry, because of COVID, not because of SARS. That border has been partially closed. They've closed about. Uh, they, they only have about three of the border crossings that are open now. The airport's open, and two uh, land border crossings are open from Shenzhen. So it's severely restricted kind of uh, uh, goods coming across that the, the border. Going to wrap it up here in a second, but I want to ask you about the sure. what does the United States look like right now from where you are? Well, that's a great question. You know, I, I uh, and you're asking me before they solve this kind of debt and financial issue that's going on here. I mean, it looks it looks incredibly polarized um, at the moment, and and I know I had a lot of hope when Biden came in that the that the polarization would give way, but when I see this kind of uh, you know, the people still thinking that the, the election was stolen. I see president, the former president, the old, the former guy, as he's called, going around giving rallies and still talking about a fraudulent election and stop the steal and all that. And people believing it, you know, it, it makes me a little bit nervous for what's going on. I mean, now and uh, and then when I see the Democrats kind of, kind of 
forming a circular firing squad and not doing simple things like go ahead and pass this infrastructure bill. You know, I, you know, I despair, you know, what's happening to the country here. I mean, you know, I can understand the, the you know, the politics of trying to hold out and, and use your muscle to get through the, the bills that you want. But I mean, the, you know, the simple thing that you're not, you're not passing a bipartisan infrastructure deal when the, one of the one of the key things about Asia and specifically Hong Kong here that I, I think I mentioned before is how efficient everything is here for the public transport, the the, the roads, the bridges, et cetera. And, you know, I fly back to New York or Newark and, you know, the roads are a mess. You know, you know, the, the bridges are falling apart. The infrastructure is falling apart. It's all old and it hasn't been repaired or fixed. And the fact that that, that we're not we can't just pass this thing and get it done and start people back to work. You know, it, it really does make me despair. And then I, I, I see these culture wars going on in the states, and I just think, what is going on here? I see what Texas is doing with the with abortion. I keep thinking, you know, this is ideological madness, kind of run amok uh, in the U.S. The the it, you know the the big debate out in this part of the world um, that you see a lot is whether you know the U.S. is the, a declining power and whether China is a rising power. But un- underneath that, underlying that, I, go, I guess is a another question as to whether democracy really works. And and a lot of people look at China and they say, look at the way China has handled COVID, for example. You know, it's an author- you know, China is an authoritarian communist government, but they know how to you know you know uh, lock down an apartment building or lock down a city when there is COVID cases and make sure it doesn't spread even though Wuhan is the place where COVID was first discovered, you know, they managed to contain it using pretty strict authoritarian methods. And then people look at the U S and say, you guys call yourself this, you know, the world's greatest open democracy, but look at what a mess you've had. You've had 600,000 people die of COVID because you can't even make people wear masks. You can't even make people get vaccinated. You give people too much freedom. And so I think it's not an exaggeration to say when you're in this part of the world, and looking back at the U.S., democracy is on the line. People are saying it doesn't work. People are saying, you know, you're, you you can't pay your you can't pay your your you, you can't make your debt payments. Uh, you can't even pass an infrastructure bill. You can't even get people to wear a mask and take a vaccine when it's scientifically proven. How can you go around the world preaching that everybody else should be a democracy when your democracy is not working? You know, you can't do the simple things. And I think what China is doing is showcasing an authoritarian model that, despite all of its human rights abuses and the things that we care about, it works. It's efficient. They get you know, everybody wearing a mask. Everybody's getting vaccinated. So again, I think it's it's a huge problem. It's really, really become a lot more difficult to defend America and defend American democracy when you see such a mess going on in the U.S. You know, 670,000 people didn't have to die of COVID. Yeah. So that, that's what I see. I see it's, it's very, very hard to be a defender of democracy and a, a defender of the, of the American system when I see what's going on right now. Keith Richberg, thank you very much for your time from Hong Kong. We appreciate it very much. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.